G'day, you are listening to Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group. I'm Dave. One of the really weird things about how the whole Occupy phenomena played out in Brisbane was the popularity and prominence of conspiracy theory amongst a whole series of the participants. It was pretty much my first encounter with this huge milieu it seems to be, of people involved in a whole range of kind of what you might call alternative or protest kind of scenes and movements and circles and cliques where the kind of uniting ideological worldview is one form or another of conspiracy theory. This is something that I've seen again at the G20 and this is something that you see kind of in the Trans-Pacific partnership, uh, partnership Opposition. A lot of it appears online, and I think there's actually something really specific about that. I wonder if there's a kind of link between the way that we move more and more to engaging through social media and the prominence of conspiracy theory, but more of that later. And it's not just in these scenes. It seems that conspiracy theory is everywhere. Some of you may have paid attention, I think it was either on last Thursday or Friday, that Morris Newman, a uh, prominent uh, business figure, ideological, uh, ideological warrior of the right, advisor for Prime Minister Abbott, wrote a column in The Australian, so that's the only national newspaper in Australia, in which he argued that climate change was a hoax, was a conspiracy by the UN to install some kind of authoritarian government and oppose capitalism and freedom. So what I want to do in today's show is kind of ask some questions about conspiracy theory. I think it's fundamentally reactionary in both content and in form, but I want to ask, is there something about our historical moment, the structure and composition of our daily lives, the structure and composition of capitalism more broadly, specific political defeats and the like, that seem to be facilitating or encouraging the development of conspiracy theory. I want to look at is there something about the material nature of existence that seems to be producing a kind of ideological result. One of the things that got me thinking about this is kind of looking back and reflecting, you know, for those of us that became kind of involved in radical oppositional politics in, say, the 1990s, if you were a young dissatisfied person looking around the society and saying there's something wrong here it's almost like you kind of naturally gravitated to a kind of mix of left libertarian socialist anarchist politics often engaged in punk hip-hop other countercultural scenes i get the impression and i'm an old man so maybe i'm wrong well i'm a middle-aged man maybe i'm wrong that for the contemporary generation younger people today in a similar position looking around at the world and saying, oh my God, something's wrong. The ideological forces that really have some kind of gravitational pull are often some kind of conspiracy theory. 9-11 truthers, red pillars, David Icke, there's a whole kind of, you know, smorgasbord of them that are, as I said before, reactionary in form and in content. So I guess linked to this, I want to also kind of think about you know, for those of us that really want to participate in an emancipatory uh, political project to overcome capitalism and develop a world where we can live lives of dignity and justice, 
how can we deal with conspiracy theories since they seem to be almost always impervious to argument? And at the same time, I kind of want to intersperse the show with pretty cool songs, or what I think are pretty cool songs, vaguely, or sometimes more specifically, on the theme of conspiracy theory. It's like the time that this uh, minister in Indiana claimed that the theme song for Mr. Ed, that old television yeah. show about the talking horse, if you played the Mr. Ed theme song backwards, it said, Satan is the source. Misinformation. Taking scissors to play with the black folk down in Florida. Colored pens and for sexing up the. I'm the someone who knew and not telling pre September. I lean on in the loop to help them unremember. I was flying on UA 93. That shadow in the footage, it was probably me I'm the rumor, I'm the doubt, I'm the lie But you wouldn't stand near me if you didn't want to die Everything you know is wrong There's a verse missing out of this song Everything you know is wrong Let's go. Okay. 
theories it's really crucial to point out that of course conspiracies do exist all states maintain secret services aimed at perceived enemies internal and external and carry out conspiracies against them that's what they do we also know historically that there are examples such as you know Pro, the strategy of tension in italy uh, where the state engages in active processes of trying to infiltrate, disrupt, and destroy uh, any form of social movements and struggles against them. And there's probably legions of these. You know, we know that the CIA was involved in smuggling cocaine into the United States. You know, we know that it also engaged in the illegal sale of uh, weapons to anti-Santanista forces in Nicaragua. So there's, you know, there's just a legion of lists about these. You know, the Hilton bombing, whatever, conspiracies exist. They're real. And that's on the level of the state. And then we know corporate forces, uh, terror organisations, all engage in conspiracies too. We also know that we're being lied to. You know, it's patently obvious now that the war in Iraq was um, justified under a large orchestrated lie. In other words, a conspiracy. We know as well that the media regularly engages in acts of deception as well as the state. In fact, they often work together on these forces. In fact, even deeper, we could follow, you know, the writings of someone like Gambon bouncing off the ideas of Carl Schmitt, that what really does, you know, kind of defines sovereignty, what makes a state sovereign, is the ability to enact the state of exception, that is, to break its own formal constitutionalised rules. And this happens all the time. You know, we live in a country, Australia, where the state engages in detaining in a complicated network of camps um, undocumented migrants, right? So all this exists. Conspiracy, lies, violence is an inherent part of the social order that we exist in. Conspiracy theories, however, are something else. They are theories that attempt to explain the world, the broad situation of the society that we exist in, as the product of the action of a coherent and determined group. 
so it's not simply that there are conspiracies, but the social order can be explained as a conspiracy. And whilst, of course, there's an endless smorgasbord of different kinds of conspiracy theories, there are similar kind of common tropes. This conspiracy is normally described as being kind of alien and outside of the norm, an external force that has impregnated and infiltrated the social order. However, it is simultaneously dominating and everywhere. And in many, and I'm going to refer back to this idea, anti-Semitism is the kind of uh, fundamental model of all of these kind of conspiracy theories. Linked to this, normally the vast majority of people are described as being asleep and brainwashed. You know, hence you see terms in conspiracies, conspiracy theorists like sheeple being repeated all the time. And the conspiracy theorists themselves often understand themselves as being a kind of the only sane man in the world, simultaneously not being believed and in danger. And there's a kind of, I think, a deep kind of emotional enjoyment that the conspiracy theorist gets out of this kind of hyper-paranoid state. Beyond that, conspiracy theory, I think, linked to this model of understanding the world, is reactionary in content and in form. On the whole, when you approach and you look into conspiracy theories, you find that the content of them are most often reactionary. They're often tied to some form of kind of formally fascist or libertarian politics, explicitly anti-Marxist, explicitly anti-feminist, explicitly seeing kind of ideas of white middle-class subjectivity under attack. Uh, they're normally deeply racist and also tied into some form of anti-Semitism. So what you find is that often this anti-Semitism, there's an attempt to skip around it or step around it by defining it as anti-Zionism. And you often find a deep anti-environmental element too. Climate change is seen as a product of one world governments to attack property rights. And I think this reactionary content is because if you dig in a little bit further, what you find is that conspiracy theories are most often attempts to understand the difference between capitalist ideology or liberal ideology or libertarian ideology and capitalism in reality. So the conspiracy theory functions as a way of explaining why does capitalism in practice look so fundamentally different from capitalism in ideal. And what the conspiracy theorist most often says is that someone has broken this. Uh, it's been the Jews or the cultural Marxists or the Illuminati or, you know, the New World Order have infiltrated from outside yet dominating society to make capitalism not appear as its truth should be. More than this, it is also reactionary in form. So what I mean by this, the methodology of conspiracy theory attempts to understand the world through linking together coincidences and connects them and then ascribes these causalities. So it doesn't really understand the kind of way that phenomena emerges in relationship to their context, material conditions and social structures. If you engage or listen to conspiracy theory a lot or watch you know, any of the endless kind of online conspiracy theory films that are just pumped out by the milieu out there, what you find is a methodology that kind of looks over multiple phenomena and looks for the most kind of bizarre surface connections, you know, similar words that reappear, similar patterns that might be seen despite historical context and links them together. This methodology a priori dismisses 
its own incoherence as evidence of the power of the conspiracy. So when the ideas don't join up and don't link together, this is then cited to show how powerful the conspiracy actually is. Simultaneously, the vision of the world that they present forecloses the possibility of collective agency. How is it possible to transform the world when the world is so fundamentally dominated by this conspiracy theory? And in practice, the dissemination of these ideas further uh, produce disorder, disorganisation, lack of confidence amongst us as a class. These kind of ideas increase our feelings of powerlessness and paranoia, so reactionary in both form and content. So in many ways... What I now want to go on and have a look at is to to kind of understand conspiracy theories as a kind of product of a paranoia that is produced by a very real lack of control in contemporary capitalist society. But simultaneously, as a product of this paranoia, they then reinforce this paranoia even further.
life. Now, I'd meant to finish this show quite a while ago, but other writing commitments and life got in the way, so I'm coming back to it after having not worked on it for a while. So before I go any further, one thing that I've been thinking about and I want to kind of differentiate my approach from is probably, you know, I want to have a critical analysis of conspiracy theories, but I want to make this very different from what I think is the dominant mainstream or liberal understanding of conspiracy theory. And probably the best example of this approach to conspiracy theory is evidenced in the very excellent and very readable The Paranoid Style by Richard Hofstadter, which is an essay that I think was published in Harper's Magazine in 1964. And so this magazine uh, looks at kind of a constant of the presence of conspiracy theory in contemporary American politics. So that's kind of interesting because, you know, one of the, my intuitions is to say, well, look, there's something about our kind of historical present, our, our moment that is amplifying conspiracy theory. But Hofstadter would say, well, actually, you know, throughout modernity from you know, the late 1700s, uh, conspiracy theory has been present, at least in American politics. He makes a kind of interesting differentiation. He says, like, a, a conspiracy theory post-American War of Independence was normally framed as there is a conspiracy from outside that wants to overthrow the Republic, whilst conspiracy theory in the second half of the 20th century, at least from the end of the Second World War to when he's writing in the 60s, which was largely kind of right-wing anti-communist conspiracy theory, believed that... Um, the conspirators had taken over America. I think we could go even further and say conspiracy theory in the 21st century thinks not only has the conspiracy taken over, but the conspiracy fundamentally is society. It is reality. There is nowhere outside of the power of the conspirator. Now, it's an excellent essay. It's the kind of... Um, no, really exemplifies this kind of excellent American essay form that I think really excelled in the 60s, kind of often with a very kind of left liberal politics, you know, left liberal politics. The problem with it, it understands conspiracy theory as a product of two kind of interlinked things. On one hand, since it sees it as a constant of modernity, it says, well, conspiracy theory is a product of a particular kind of paranoid approach. So it's a question of like individual psychology taking on to the social level then combined with it is you know grow, you know it is prevalent at the time because the political system uh, is prohibiting some voices so i think what he's saying is kind of you know in early 1960s america you know fordist keynesian liberal America, the kind of classic American right, is excluded from the political process. They're seeing a kind of golden age of capitalism, capitalism that doesn't fit with their vision. So the combination of this kind of general human tendency towards paranoia amongst a certain section of the population met with this kind of moment of political exclusion gives birth to conspiracy theory. Therefore, you know, the kind of conclusion Hofstadter, well, I think you take from Hofstadter is a conspiracy theory is just a permanent part of social reality because there's always going to be paranoid crazy people out there um, combined with if you want to deal with conspiracy theory then the state the liberal democratic state has to make sure that it manages conflict in a in a more effective way right this is kind of a post-ideological vision so what you get from this reading of conspiracy theory and i think this is the dominant way conspiracy theory is is expressed as it's either a crazy people or b we need a better state to create people's levels of political participation and that's obviously not what I want to say, right? You know, like, on one hand, I don't think the solution to our present is a more effective liberal democratic state. The liberal democratic state is a fundamental element of the operation of capital accumulation, and it, therefore it's part of the condition we have to overthrow. But also, 
and what I want to deal with next is I think it doesn't go far enough, right? Um, because what it prevents is actually saying, well, is there something about the organisation of social relationships under the liberal state in a capitalist society that makes people experience reality as an experience of being fundamentally powerless and therefore the kind of ideological reaction they have to the world is one of attempting to explain it as being controlled by someone else, if that makes sense. So the next step I want to look into is, well, what is uh, some of the social dynamics in contemporary capitalism on a national or global level, national or a global level, that uh, makes us feel like we have no control? Because we don't seemingly have any control. And how can this help explain why conspiracy is the lens, the, the framework, the paradigm, the model, which so many people seem to be turning to to make sense of a reality in a crazy, crazy world?
So it's been a while again since I've been working on this podcast, but I've got the afternoon off sick and I was just looking and listening through to the podcast so far and I was like, hey, it's not too bad. Maybe I should try to put an end on this. Also, I guess I felt the need to kind of uh, return to these questions because I've been off trying to do writing and other things in life and what have you. Partly because trying to have a very marginal engagement with opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership which is at this stage mainly, as far as I can tell, on social media, I've once again encountered the phenomena that a huge amount, or a substantial proportion at least, of the kind of opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership in Australia is thought about through the lens or the various lenses of different conspiracy theories. And it really strikes me that this is a remarkable difference from, say, the politics of the ultra-globalisation movement, which perhaps I'm looking back on with kind of rose-tinted glasses because it was a movement that was so crucial to me in the period of my youth. But the dominant framework broadly during the ultra-globalisation movement was an emancipatory anti-capitalist one, one that understood what was then maybe called globalisation or neoliberalism embodied in the World Trade Organisation and the like, as an extension of capitalist social dynamics and that the opposition to this had to be a kind of an international movement of emancipation, best summed up in our slogan of um, our resistance is as global as capital. However, a quick look at the Trans-Pacific Partnership debates present a very different framework. You broadly see a kind of nationalist understanding where the nation-state is under assault by global forces and these global forces are the product and the beneficiary of some form of conspiracy. Now, of course, honestly, these voices and theories were there during the ultra-globalisation movement, but they were largely marginal and pushed to the side, deliberately pushed to the side, because people realised their reactionary uh, content and often associated with various forms of third-positionist or fascist groupings. What's kind of interesting, I think, even a lot of the people that might be talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership online that are using these lenses are people that have, say, a broadly social democratic kind of understanding, a nostalgic look back to a previous form of capitalism, but are still caught in this lens. So it's kind of compelled me to come back and think about, well, what's what's going on here? Why, Why is it that the default framework for a critique of the world is some form of conspiracy theory? And I think there's a number of levels that I want to pursue the rest of the explanation, trying to unpack this phenomena about why this is happening. And some of that explanation has to do with, I think, the substantial underlying social relations of capitalism, but partly it's got to do with a historical experience as well. And a historical experience that Personally, one I think we need to think about more and more is the experience of the defeat of the anti-war movement, and that's the movement of 2003-2004. So, you know, as for those of you that know how do we frame this, if you've forgotten, this was the massive demonstrations that happened in Australia as part of a worldwide movement opposing the Coalition of the Willings invasion of Iraq. Here we saw rallies of a size we'd never seen before, hundreds of thousands of people involved in all the major cities in Australia opposing Australia's opposition as part of, as I said, a global opposition to the war. Yet the war proceeded and has had a completely catastrophic effect. You know, there's one of the 
desperately horrible things of being proved right. It was just what a failure, um, just what a bloody mess the, the result has been. But let's pull back from that question. So you have hundreds of thousands of people organising largely within the framework of liberal democracy. So there's core groups of people, largely the honourable mentions have to go to anarchists, who are attempting to push beyond um, the framework of liberal democracy to engage in a more radical, disobedient attempt to oppose the drive towards war. But the vast majority of people involved in this essentially rallies, participating, letters to the media, those kind of things. And the war goes ahead nonetheless. I think this is really a moment of a generational defeat where it kind of proves to people that liberal democratic societies like Australia are not democratic, that you can have the, the big rally everyone's always been wanting and then it has no effect. I think this is a generational marker and does two things, I guess. On one hand, it convinces a large amount of people of the hopelessness of large-scale collective change. And secondly, it needs to create or it creates the desire to build some kind of explanation about why is it that despite having formal democratic rights and freedoms, the population on a whole seems to have such little power. And I think both that experience and that question have been driven towards conspiracy theory because it's conspiracy theory that tries to identify and name um, other forces, you know, shadowy forces that undermine the democratic process or construct reality in a way to make it an illusion. And I guess we've had a kind of failure of radical and emancipatory um, politics to do the same by perhaps not taking these questions seriously. And since then, since that generational failure, I think in some ways we could experience, we could typify the last decade as being a cavalcading moment of political failure for attempts to change the world in some kind of more positive direction, whether this be, um, you know, the huge existential and living threat of climate change, the brutal regime of the borders. We've, we see these attempts at social struggles never reaching the numbers but of the anti-war movement, but despite the kind of desperate need for something to happen, being unable to fundamentally change the politics of the state. And I think it is this that has produced the kind of deep understanding amongst the population on an experiential level, an experiential level, that you don't have any power. And that's one of the reasons that I think conspiracy theory has arisen. Also, I think perhaps there's a juxtaposition in people's minds to a previous time when these, seem, these things seem to work, when rallies had power, particularly rallies, because I think, you know, rallies constitute, you know, nine, ten, nine of the ten cards or ten, you know, how, look, well, it's a terrible metaphor. I don't know how many, how many cards do people hold. Let's say they hold ten. You know, out of the cards that people hold in their hands when they try to engage in social movements, rallies are either all of them or 90% of them, right? And in, there's a certain understanding that there was a time when rallies were effective and um, that is not this moment. 
you when you if you're in a city like Brisbane, when you engage most people on the kind of radical left, they, they don't want to deal with this question because since rallies are the dominant card that they have, uh, when you show it, say, well, they don't work and people feel they don't work, there's just kind of a mental shutdown. There's like just a cognitive inability to face that because I think it would compel the radical left to thoroughly rethink that strategy. All right, a debate for another time, but an, an important debate. But perhaps you can make an argument that during the 20th century in the global north, because of the intensity of social struggles, the state as a way of maintaining the social order had to concede a certain level of demands and a certain level of um, yeah demands to social movements expressed in rallies. That when there were, but also because I guess when there were rallies, when people mobilised in the city, they were expressing a broader power that they had. This was a time when there was a higher and more combative, high level of organisation in the work in the workplace, and the working class was more combative. Um, so a rally itself, I think, seemed to embody a broader social power. It seemed to carry a gun in its pocket, so to speak. We've got to then maybe address that something has changed, that the organisation of capitalism since the end of the Second World War has done something that means that social power no longer exists, that a mobilisation of people on the street no longer threatens the state in a way that it needs to conceive demands. I think that's a really... that's a, And I think that's crucial. I, you know, one of the things that if people are listening to this and the small discussions we need to have is an analysis of how does power operate in capitalism right now and then use that kind of analysis to develop another load of tactics from that. But in terms of the question of conspiracy theories, I think it is this kind of one-hand generational experience of powerlessness, a, compar- a, compar- a comparison to a time when where it was felt the society was in some ways more democratic for all the problems that it, that it had. And perhaps a lot of this is mystification, right? Um, it is though that experience and that difference that explains partly the popularity of conspiracy theory because people are attempting to answer the question, why doesn't democracy work? Which I think also, if you're someone like me who thinks that conspiracy theory is a problem, we need to have a good answer for why don't democracies work? Why doesn't democracy work? Why are we trapped in these ways? And partly, I think, um, most often, you know, kind of left discourse focuses on the level of talking about the disproportionate power that, say, maybe the media has or big money, for lack of a better term, has. And that's kind of useful. But we could also talk about the kind of way that the basic elementary building blocks of social relationships and capitalism work to push the social order in a particular direction. And that would also simultaneously explain our um, absence of really lived power, but also the basis for conspiracy theory.
So is there something deeper in the social relationships of capitalism that produce the basis for conspiracy theory? Is there something about how we live our daily life that makes us feel powerlessness in our world? And I think there really clearly is, and there are probably multiple in different ways. One of the things that is so interesting about, I guess, the kind of critique of capitalism is to try to express on one hand that the capitalist mode of production and the capitalist societies that are built around it, that are now global, we live in a global capitalist world, has on one hand amplified the creative capacities of humanity to a level that we've never seen before, the kind of wealth we've created, the technological development, all that kind of stuff, those kind of capacities. Yet the experience of it individually and collectively is that we're not in control. And in fact, quite rightly, many of us kind of think we're rocketing towards disaster. How do we get this? How do we understand this juxtaposition, this contradiction between, on one hand, human capacities for creativity have never been more powerful, but humanity in a relationship to its own creative potential has never been more powerless? Mind-blowing, right? I think, and it's difficult to engage with, there are a number of elements of, say, the critique of political economy pioneered by Marx and then other elements in that radical tradition that help us try to grasp this. So one of the things that Marx was looking at in the critique of political economy, so the book itself, Introduction to Critique of Political Economy, the three volumes or four volumes, if you define it that way, of Capital, the Grundrisse, is this very dynamic. And he explains it on a number of different levels. But at the start of Capital, he says, well, you know, in capitalist societies, wealth takes the form of the vast accumulation of commodities. And commodities are the cell form of capital, but they're also both a very simple thing but a very mysterious thing, full of metaphysical subtleties, I think, is the line that he uses. So what Marx is trying to explain here that you know, there is the direct material wealth, there's the utility of a service or a good, whether it be physical or, or immaterial, that we produce. But the kind of existence it takes in capitalism is that of the commodity, that of something that's bought and sold on the market that has a price on it. And very simply, Marx says, when you have a society, when wealth takes the form of commodities, the relationships between people in that society that have been producing this wealth becomes mediated through the movement of those commodities itself. This is commodity fetishism. So Marx writes, the mysterious character of the commodity form consists therefore simply in the fact that the commodity reflects the social characteristics of men's own labour as objective characteristics of the products of labour themselves, as the socio-natural properties of these things. Hence, it also reflects the social relation of the producers to the sum total of labour as a social relation between objects, a relation which exists apart from and outside the producers. Through this substitution, the products of labour become commodities, sensuous things which are at the same time supra-sensible or social. The commodity is, it is nothing but the 
definite social relation between men themselves, which assume here for them the fantastic form of a relation between things. Simply being, what does this mean? Well, if we walk into a supermarket, we see all these products. These products themselves are all products of other products. They've all got all these inputs put in. They're the combined creation of untold human labour. But we don't see the individuals. We don't see the labourers. What we see on it is the price tag. The price tag reflecting social relations between people expressed as value. And capitalist society itself is a society where we take money, the ultimate expression of value, and we organise our productive activity so we can produce things, or so we can trade things, so we can lend money to each other with the end goal of producing more money. Those things in the shopping centre only exist so people can make money out of them. Join these two figures together, right? You have our wealth taking the form of the commodity and the commodity only being produced so people can realise more value in the form of money. This is a world of great human creativity, but a creativity that has a relationship to itself mediated by things, driven not for human advancement, but driven for the accumulation of the ultimate fetish, money upon money upon money. This then says something about our estrangement, but then dive into the workplace and what we find is the individual human being organised on great masses, and I don't care if you're talking about working in a cafe or a huge factory, where the individual is both subjected to the direct control of the boss and simultaneously the entire enterprise is subordinate to the broader movements of the economy, the broader patterns and rhythms of investment and capital accumulation. Even more than this, we can say that capital accumulation itself has a tendency towards crisis. It's very dynamic nature means that there's this production of a huge amount of commodities that struggle to be sold. On top of that, as more and more proportionally capital is invested in technology rather than human labour, the very basis for profitability becomes undermined. And there's the huge explosion of finance and various forms of credit that take on an extra realm of unreality. The lived experience of that one of that, that, that explains then, I think, and as an insight to this experience of the, the juxtaposition between the incredible capacity for human beings and the inability to control that capacity. That says something about why capitalist society produces a feeling of powerlessness and if you exist in a historical moment where there isn't a large-scale collective challenge to that um, social to, to that social order, then you will have um, the kind of basis, the paranoid defeated basis that conspiracy theory grows out of.
So where we're up to? Uh, okay, I think we're just trying to talk about the nature of the kind of capitalist social relations. So the explanation that I've got so far is, you know, I've got a hypothesis. Conspiracy theory is growing as a framework that many people um, view the world at. In some ways, it's become the default outsider or oppositional framework. Not saying it's the only one, but the default one. That the basis for this that I've suggested so far uh, is the historical experience of the defeat of the anti-war movement as part of an expression of a larger hollowing out of the minimal democratic practices of liberal democratic capitalism combined with the uh, explicit or implicit, actually, nature of social relations in capitalism and how our existence in them creates a world of human capacity that humans do not control. And I guess part of that later argument is suggesting that as capital, the capitalist mode of production subsumes even more of society as its kind of creative capacities develop to an even greater level as we become more of a global capitalist world, then that juxtaposition between the power of creation and the inability to control that power of creation intensifies even further. Again, you know, within these two elements, giving the basis of conspiracy theory. I think there's a whole range of other explanations that people would like to put forward now because, you know, a capitalist society is much more than simply the capitalist mode of production. So, you know, one directly is the growing power of the state, how do relations of gender um, figure into this. There's something particularly interesting where it seems to be that conspiracy theory is increasingly explicitly anti-feminist and, you know, um, men's rights activism ties into conspiracy theory and that's the kind of world that I'd be interested in hearing what people think about that. Um, Again, there's often like a massively... Like, I'm quite surprised that when you encounter conspiracy theory in hippie circles, just how racist it is. Like, you know, third-position fascist ideas, you know, the works of, like, various forms of alternative nationalism. I think it's Alexander Dugan, you know, appear in the pages of Nexus and New Dawn. There's this real racist content to it as well. So I think there needs to be some kind of exploration about what is it in the particular organisation of the um, power relationships of gender and, and, and creation and organisation of race that is producing this kind of white paranoia that becomes reflected into conspiracy theory. But I guess also the time then comes, what's the solution? Well, I think if you boil this down, my suggestion is that conspiracy theory is the logical outgrowth of the experience of a life without power. So the alternative to conspiracy theory, the way that you want to deal with conspiracies, is the collective development of power. Uh, Here I guess we hit our limit because if I want to also talk about um, the, sh- the collapse of kind of radical and emancipatory anti-capitalist, libertarian socialist, communist, uh, those kind of ex- f- forms of thought for explaining the world and conspiracy theory rising, then we have to hit this point that the left as it exists, right, very marginal, very small, and if that's you think the left and anti-capitalism are the same things, obviously a big debate can happen there, does not currently have a practice that can manifest power. What would we need? We would need to start with, I think, an analysis of the operation of capitalism today, 
How does it actually work? Develop a series of strategies about what concrete groups of people can do in this concrete conjuncture to shift the balance towards our direction and then manifest tactics to allow that. And I think the debate around the social strike has been attempting to do this. As such, conspiracy theory as a broad-scale social phenomena is not something one can argue away, but rather because what gives it life is the palpable absence of the class movement itself. The only thing that will ever fundamentally undermine it is the arise, er, the, er, the development of that class movement. What is the possibility of small, concrete groups of radicals today to contribute to the development of that movement? And that's it for this episode of Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group. Hope you're reading our blog on the word from strugglestreet.wordpress.com. I'm Dave. Have a lovely Arvo.